1: And away we go, episode seventeen of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Monday, March fifteenth, two thousand twenty-one, the day on which the madness begins. No, not college basketball's March Madness. That's already underway. And yes, we do have that traditional March Madness to talk about on this Monday. But I'm talking about the other March Madness, NFL free agency madness. It begins today, the legal tampering period. The true start of NFL free agency. That begins at noon Eastern on Monday. When the clock strikes noon, the news via flowing. Uh, It is today, Monday, on which we will have a truckload of reports of who is signing with who. It is today, Monday, on which our Washington football team could strike big. Who is it going to be? Kenny Galladay, Curtis Samuel, Juju Smith-Schuster, Hunter Henry, Janu Smith. What about quarterback, right? Does all of the quarterback conversation end today with Washington agreeing on a deal with, say, Ryan Fitzpatrick, Tyrod Taylor, Jacoby Brissett. What? Those guys don't have you excited? They don't have you amped up? Our world could be forever changed over these next few hours. So I am here to prepare you mentally, emotionally, spiritually for what may be about to happen. But good morning. Good to have you with us. Loaded show today. I have four final free agent thoughts for the Washington football team I'll give those to you momentarily. We had Washington football team news on Sunday regarding the kicker. Yes, Dustin Hopkins. He had been a free agent to be. Looks like he's being brought back. What do we think about Dustin Hopkins? What should we think about Dustin Hopkins? I want to get into that. We also finally, mercifully, can uh, close the door on any Cam Newton talk uh, regarding the Washington football team off him agreeing to resign with New England. Of course, we will talk NCAA tournament, which now is set. Well, at least for now, uh, we'll see what happens with Virginia's COVID-19 situation, and we'll of course get into what went down over the last few days in the conference tournaments, including Mark Turgeon versus Jawan Howard, and yes, the Hoyas pulling off the miracle run, winning the Big East tournament, just a spectacular job by Patrick Ewing and Georgetown. We're talking Maryland, Georgetown, Virginia, Virginia Tech, even VCU on this podcast, Today. Also plenty for you on the Capitals, Wizards, Nationals, and Orioles. Like I said, people, this is a loaded show on this Monday. You can email me, the Algaldi Podcast at Yahoo.com. Continue to love all the emails I'm getting from you guys. You can, of course, tweet me too at Algaldi. Got this tweet very early on this Monday morning. Uh, tweet from James. He wrote me, he said, I'm such an addict for your pod. I woke up this morning, Sunday, so I guess for James it was Monday uh slash Sunday night. But he said, I'm such an addict for your pot. I woke up this morning, Sunday, refreshing multiple times on Apple podcast only to remember it was Sunday. Yes, James, uh, I can't be with you every day of the week. Five days a week, though, I can do for you. But I love that man. He's an addict. He can't get enough of what we're doing here uh, every weekday morning. So great job by James letting us know, opening up to the world about his true feelings about the Al Galdi podcast. You know, I woke up on Sunday. I had no idea what time it was. I completely flaked on the whole, you know, turn back the clock thing. So I saw my clock said one thing, my phone said another. And like, like a moron, I said to myself, how come my phone's wrong? Well, why is my phone wrong? Then I went down to the kitchen, right? And I saw the clock on the oven and on the microwave. And I saw that those clocks at the same time that the clock in my bedroom had had. So I said, oh, well, my phone must be wrong because <laughs> these other clocks are right. It's like, no, you idiot, the phone is right and everything else is wrong. You're completely flaked on turning back the clock. So we're okay now though, we're okay now. I think we are, uh, anyway. All right, special announcement for you before we get going truly on this Monday, all right? So this is episode 16 of the Al Galdi podcast. This episode is the first episode for this podcast as we begin a new era. All right, and you may have seen this if you read the very good Washington Post article written by Scott Allen uh, about me venturing into the world of podcasting. That article came out this past Thursday. But I have signed with a podcast company, Blue Wire Podcasts, which is a big time podcast company that already is large and is getting even larger. It is a company that is growing. It is a company that is surging, in fact. You can look it up. You can Google that. As uh, Dan Snyder said at that Rod Rivera intro presser. That's very, very hard to do. You should Google that. Yes, Danny, thank you. It is hard to do, and you can Google that. And I'm thrilled to be joining Blue Wire Podcasts. Uh, I released the first full episode of this podcast, episode two, three weeks ago today, February 22nd, and I got contacted that day by the CEO of Blue Wire, Kevin Jones, about coming on board. Kevin's a great guy. He's got a great thing going here with Blue Wire I signed the contract with them last week, and we're off and running today. Now, you say, all right, well, what does this mean for me? Well, truthfully, not much. Uh really doesn't impact how you get or listen to the podcast. There's a new home website for the pod, but that's not a big deal. I've linked to it on my Twitter page. But if you are a subscriber, your subscription is unchanged. You don't have to do a thing. Uh, I still own the podcast. I still run the podcast. This is still you and me together. It is our operation. You are as big a part of this Uh, as me, but nothing changes, uh, along those lines. Just know that the deal with Blue Wire is good for, shall we say, the health and sustainability of this podcast, the financial well-being, uh, of the podcast. So thrilled to be on board, very happy to be on board. And once again, this is a credit to you because without your support, stuff like this does not happen. So good news there with the podcast. You know, I, I alluded to this. On Friday's installment of the show, you know, I said, you know, there are things happening, big things, good things in the works. This is among those things. So uh, very good that I can share that with you here on this Monday, a Monday that could forever change our Washington football team. Yes. And before we get to that, do want to tell you about something very special, something that even Mark Turgeon and Jawan Howard could agree on. So outrageous commissions have been a staple in real estate forever, right? This is something we've all had to deal with at some point. It's something that has never sat right with a big supporter of this podcast, John Grandland. What if I told you that my guy John G with Real Broker will sell your house for free? That's right. You heard that right. For free. From the moment you call John to the last page of the paperwork signed, he is there. He handles everything. Professional photography, detailed market analysis, a huge syndication network, and so much more to ensure that you are not hunting for buyers for months on end. When John finds you an offer for $500,000, say, that's $15,000 that you would normally pay your listing agent, that stays right in your pocket. Then John helps you find the house of your dreams and everyone, feels right at home. You cannot beat this. Expansive services at the lowest commission possible. 0. Yes, 0. You can find out more about this program. You can find your home's value. Check out the website and I love the address for this site. JohnG free.com Simple, to the point, tells you exactly what you're getting into. JohnG sellsforfree.com. 0 commission or better yet, you can call John 703-537-6747. That's 703-537-6747. John Grandland, zero commission. Tell him Al Goldie sent you. All right, my friends, legal tampering period in the NFL gets going on Monday at noon Eastern. All kinds of news is going to be breaking. We're going to have so much to get into on this podcast on Tuesday. It was on Friday uh, after the release of this podcast that we did have Significant Washington football team news, and that was that Brandon Sheriff signed his one-year franchise tag tender. No surprise, but it is worth reading into the record. Uh, Washington tagged Brandon on Monday night. Washington ended up seeing Brandon sign the one-year franchise tag tender on Friday. It did not take long, and why should it have taken long? One-year, $18.036 million contract. Who among us would not sign that? Especially when you're Brandon Sheriff especially when you have his injury history and especially when you play his position. Yes, guard.
0: And the other one's a guard.
1: Yes, thank you, Jay Gruden. Look, we're not going to rehash where I stand on the Brandon Sheriff situation. We've talked about that a bunch already. I have no interest in him playing for Washington under the terms of a second consecutive franchise tag tender. I want either a long-term deal or I want him tagged and traded. I don't get any real sense that Washington is interested in tagging and trading Sheriff. So the idea with the tag clearly is to try to get a long-term deal done. But as I have outlined, once you franchise tag Brandon Sheriff for a second straight off-season, you A, disincentivized him from agreeing on a long-term deal this offseason, and B, you made it even more likely that he ups and leaves you after the 2021 season. So you are staring right down the barrel right now at paying this guy $33 million over two years. Again, a guard.
0: And the other one's a guard.
1: Thank you, Jay Gruden. And like we've discussed, it's not that Brandon Sheriff isn't good. He is quite good, but he's oft injured. He plays a position that you can fill on the cheap. And this just, to me, is not the way to handle this. I mean, let's be honest, okay? If the guy presiding over football operations right now is Bruce Allen and not Ron Rivera, we would be skewering. We would be filleting. We would be harpooning Bruce for doing this. Now, Ron gets a benefit of the doubt. And by the way, he deserves a benefit of the doubt, but that doesn't mean that we're just going to like blindly swallow and accept every little thing that happens. And I just, I don't like this. I I don't feel like this is trending in a good direction for the organization. It's not the end of the world. Washington does have the cap room. So like if you have to pay share of $18 million for one more year, you can certainly afford that. But that's not the point. This to me is not good player personnel. This to me is not managing the cap, managing your positions. The way they should be managed. This is not a position, again, guard at which you want to be paying big money to guys. Certainly, if you're going to pay big money to someone, you want it to be along the lines of, you know, 13, 14, 15 million dollars and with some cost certainty, i.e. there's a long-term contract in place, not, eh, one year, 18 million, and we'll kind of see what happens. Sheriff has very little reason now to agree on a long-term deal this offseason. At the very least, he's going to say, why should I do that? I'll make my 18 mil this year. That'll make it $33 million over the last two years. I'll go into unrestricted free agency after this upcoming season. Uh, the cap is, of course, set to skyrocket beyond this year. And I'll make even more money. You know, this is exactly what happened with Kirk. Like it's happening all over again. And one more thing on Sheriff to be mindful of. So Brandon Sheriff in being franchise tagged in back-to-back off seasons by the Washington football team became just the third offensive lineman over the last 20 years to receive a franchise tag in back-to-back years. Do you know who the other two guys were? Orlando Pace and Walter Jones, each of whom, by the way, interestingly, got franchise tagged in each of three consecutive off-seasons. But Pace and Jones are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Pace and Jones are two all-time great offensive tackles. So that's the company you've put Brandon Sheriff in and franchise tagging him in back-to-back years. In the company of two Hall of Fame offensive tackles. Now, you can like Brandon Sheriff, but A, he's a guard, not a tackle. And the other one's a guard. Yes, thank you, Jay. And B, is Sheriff a Hall of Famer? I mean, let, let, let's, let's calm down a little bit here, right? He's good. He's very likable. Nobody has anything bad to say about Brandon Sheriff, the guy or the worker. But is he a Hall of Famer? Because that's what you've done. You have catapulted him into that stratosphere and franchise tagging him in back-to-back years. All right, uh, I digress though from the Sheriff thing. Some things to be thinking about here as Washington embarks into free agency 2021. So first of all, to me, the approach for Washington and free agency really shouldn't be that complicated, okay? I want Washington to value two things as much as anything, okay? Durability and upside. One of the things that's really been impressed upon me over the last few years, and I think a lot of this had to do with those back-to-back injury-ravage seasons, that Washington had in 2017 and 2018 is you don't want guys on your team and you certainly don't want big money guys on your team who can't stay healthy. This is one of the things that really got Washington in trouble, paying too much to too many who provided too little. Whether you're talking about Jordan Reed or Chris Thompson or Paul Richardson or even somebody like Alex Smith. And it's not all these guys' fault that they would get hurt, but they got hurt. You couldn't rely on them. And too much of your cap, way too much of your cap, ended up being occupied by guys who just didn't post, just weren't healthy. It's a one-way street to double-digit lost territory. So I want durability to be a big-time factor. So I bring this up with something like the tight end situation. You're hearing, you're reading a lot about Hunter Henry. Hunter Henry is widely considered to be the top free agent tight end on the market. Hunter Henry is a very good tight end. I'm not here to tell you otherwise, but Hunter Henry has had a very hard time staying healthy. He has played in just 55 of a possible 80 regular season games over his five seasons in the NFL. He missed all of 18 due to a torn right ACL. He missed four games in 2019 due to a fractured left knee. Now, he did stay mostly healthy in 2020. Just missed a couple of games, the Chargers final two games due to being on the team's reserve COVID-19 list. But the point with Hunter Henry is there is an injury history that's impossible to ignore. So for me, okay, and this is just me, little old me, but if I'm trying to upgrade a tight end, and I think Washington should try to upgrade a tight end, not to say that Logan Thomas didn't have a very good 2020, but you have like no depth beyond Logan Thomas, I would be in big time on Janu Smith. And I talked about this on the podcast last week. Janu Smith is younger than Hunter Henry, not by much, but younger by about a year. Jonu Smith has been extremely durable for the Tennessee Titans. He's played in 60 of a possible 64 regular season games over four seasons. Johnu Smith has demonstrated year by year improvement with the Titans. Johnu Smith is known as a guy who is physical, who is strong, who is willing to block. And Johnu Smith is someone who, no, maybe he's not as skilled as Hunter Henry when it comes to catching the football and making plays, but Jonu Smith is capable. See the spectacular diving one-arm catch with his left arm in the back left corner of the end zone that he made in that stunning Titans win at the Baltimore Ravens in the divisional round in the 2020 NFL playoffs. Smith is not going to cost as much as Henry. Like I think that's a classic case of don't just make the big splash and take the big swing. You can find much better value and get much more certainty with someone like a who Smith than you can whether Hunter Henry. So to me, I I think that's always the way to approach free agency, value durability, and also value upside. Like John O. Smith, again, younger, demonstrating year-by-year improvement, like there's upside here. And Washington, of course, made a lot of upside signings last offseason, and a lot of those signings paid off, whether you're talking about Logan Thomas or J.D. McKissick or Ronald Darby. Another thing to be thinking about regarding the Washington football team as it enters into free agency is, is this going to be a depressed free agent market with the salary cap having gone down, with the NFL having lost substantial revenue due to the COVID-19 pandemic? Are we going to see players get humbled in terms of what they thought they might get in the open market? You know, we saw this in Major League Baseball. This past MLB offseason, one of the interesting things you can do with NFL free agency via the great website Spotrack is you can get what is the projected annual average value for the various free agents out there. So what Spotrack, a great NFL contract slash salary cap website, projects for various guys to get. And if you look at the receiver market, which obviously is something we expect our Washington football team to be a play a in Kenny Galladay is projected to get an AAV of $17 million per year, okay? So that's a lot of money. And if you told me, you said, okay, you can have Galladay, but it's $17 million a year, I'd kind of be like, "Eh, I don't know about that. Like, I like Kenny Galladay. There's a lot to his game and a lot to where he could really help Washington. You know, Kenny Galladay is essentially what Josh Doxson was supposed to be, a true deep threat, a true 50-50 ball guy, big bodied guy, big playmaker, very good at the contested catch all those kinds of things. But $17 million a year? I don't know. That's that's a lot. Especially for a guy, by the way, who actually missed substantial time in 2020 due to injury. Again, going back to this idea of durability. Kenny Galladay in 2020 played in just five games. He missed the Detroit Lions' first two games of the season due to a hamstring injury, then missed the Lions' final nine games of the season due to a hip flexor strain. But if you told me Washington could sign Galladay for, say, I don't know, $13 million a year, you know, something like that, I I think it becomes a lot more appealing. Well, is this going to be, you know, a typical NFL free agency situation where the top of the market guys get big time money, you know, and there or there is a bidding war for Galladay and he ends up getting say $17 million or are a lot of teams just not in on trying to play the bidding war with a guy like Galladay and is his market depressed and does it end up being that Galladay has to settle for say $12, $13 million a year, that kind of a thing. Because that's significant because if you can get Galladay on the relative cheap, if you can get a relative bargain buy on the guy who maybe slash probably is the top free agent receiver out there, then that's something to pounce on. And so that's going to be so interesting to follow. Like you you look at some of the projected AVs for these top free agent receivers. Spotrack had it. Kenny Galladay at $17 million a year. Juju Smith-Schuster at $16.1 million per year. Curtis Samuel at $12.5 million per year. Corey Davis, $9.9 million per year. One of the reasons I have advocated for Washington to sign Curtis Samuel isn't just that he's really fast and offers position flex because he's uh, very good as a ball carrier in addition to as a pass catcher and also is someone who Ron Rivera, Scott Turner, Terry McLaurin all know quite well. But Curtis Samuel, I've always felt, was it going to cost you? what a guy like a Galladay or a Juju would cost you? And I think that's usually the best way to do free agency. Don't just be in on the top of the market, guys. Go to that second tier. Like, don't get the A guy. Maybe get the B guy who offers you a lot more value. You know, production per dollar. Washington did that last offseason at corner. You know, not spending the huge money on James Bradbury or Byron Jones, but spending lesser but still decent money on Kendall Fuller. I thought that was such a smart way to attack corner last offseason. And I felt that that would be the way, could be the way, should be the way. At receiver, right? Curtis Samuel to me at twelve and a half million dollars per year, I think is a lot more appealing than Kenny Galladay at 17 million dollars per year. But if that's not going to be the case for Galladay, if he can be had in that $12.5, $13 million per year range, then heck yeah. Let let's talk turkey with old Kenny G and get him on board with the Washington football team. So that's something to be following here. What does the market dictate, especially for the top of the market guys? At the positions of need for the Washington football team, like receiver, you know, like tight end, like linebacker. And then a last thing to be thinking about with Washington as it goes into free agency is this. So, you know, by now, Washington has a lot of cap space in a year in which the cap has gone down, in a, in a year in which so many teams are having to cut guys to make it under the cap. Washington has a lot of room with which to work. Washington can be zigging when so many teams are going to have to be zagging. However, it's not just that Washington has money available to it that other teams don't. It's also this, and I think this is really key, and this is another positive to Washington having all of the salary cap space in this offseason. You likely by now have heard or read about this voidable years phenomenon and how this is going to be a very common staple in contracts that are done this offseason. Voidable years tacked onto the end of contracts to make these contracts more palatable from a salary cap standpoint, okay? We won't get into the nitty gritty about what voidable years mean, but just understand teams do it to lighten the load when it comes to cap implications for these big money contracts. What Washington can do because it has ample salary cap space is offer free agents contracts that are front loaded. Whereas so many other teams, if they're in on say a Kenny Galladay or a Hunter Henry or whoever, are going to have to structure contracts in a way to where those contracts fit into those team salary cap situations. Washington, because it has all this cap room, can say, forget about signing with that team, which is in cap hell and is going to have to backload your contract. We'll front load your contract. We'll give you a ton of money early in the deal when you most want the money, when the money can most benefit you. You know, we'll pay you big money in 2021. Forget about 2023 and what you're going to get that season. 2021, my friend, we'll pay you big. You know, you can do things contractually. You can do things structurally with deals that other teams can't do because you have all this cap space. And that, to me, is a very distinct and very important advantage for Washington in free agency this offseason. Don't lose sight of that. Washington has the ammunition to be a big-time player in free agency. And Washington, for the most part, of course, wasn't a major player in free agency in 2020. Took the big swing at Amari Cooper, swung and missed, spent decent money on Kendall Fuller. That is true. But by and large, it was a lot of the Logan Thomas, J.D. McKissick, Ronald Darby type signings. And like we said, a lot of those ended up working out. But a year later, you have all this cap room and so many other teams do not. Ron Rivera knows his roster, knows what he has, knows what he doesn't have. Washington, to me, is poised to try to make a big splash in free agency. Heck, Ron told it to us last week in a Zoom presser. Washington has guys it wants, is going to go hard and heavy after those guys initially. And if Washington connects great, if it doesn't, it'll pivot and you'll probably see something more along the lines of what we saw in the 2020 offseason. But this is going to be a very juicy and I think very eventful next 24 hours or so for the Washington football team. We did have some Washington football team news on Sunday, multiple reports that Washington is expected to re-sign Dustin Hopkins, who is set to be an unrestricted free agent uh, over the next few days here. So he may go into unrestricted free agency, but it sounds like that a contract is being worked out if it hasn't been worked out already. Dustin Hopkins, our Washington football team kicker. What do we think about Dustin Hopkins? What should we think? about Dustin Hopkins. So he's going into his age 31 season. Dustin Hopkins in 2020 dealt with a right groin injury. Also dealt with some more struggles, but he still ended up being Washington's kicker for all 17 games. Dustin Hopkins got off to a very bad start in 2020. He missed one kick, a field goal attempt or an extra point attempt, in seven of Washington's first 10 games in the 2020 season. You may recall that 30-27 loss After Detroit Lions in Week 10, Hopkins in that game had a first-quarter 38-yard field goal and did have a clutch game-tying 41-yard field goal with 16 seconds left in the fourth quarter, but he missed a 43-yard field goal attempt in the second quarter, and Ron Rivera during a Zoom press conference a day after the game said that the team was, quote, talking about and discussing, end quote, replacing Dustin Hopkins. That was kind of like the peak of being on Dustin Hopkins' watch in 2020, but Ron ended up sticking with Hopkins. And like so many things Ron did in 2020, the decision paid off. Hopkins got better as the season went on. Hopkins over Washington's final six games of the regular season, 13 of 14 on field goals. Off over the first 10 games, having gone just 14 of 20 on field goals. Uh, you go back to the win at the Pittsburgh Steelers, 23-17 at Heinz Field on that uh, Monday evening in week 13. Hopkins was great in that game. Three of three on field goals, all of which were lengthy. A 49-yarder with one second left in the second quarter, a 45-yarder with two or four left in the fourth quarter, and a 45-yarder with 17 seconds left in the fourth quarter. Got named special teams player of the week for his work in that game. Though we did have a short kickoff in that game. Came off Washington having just tied the game at 17 in the fourth quarter. The kickoff went to just the Steelers' six, resulted in a 32-yard return by Ray-Ray McLeod, but the ensuing Steelers' drive did result in a turnover on downs. Here's the thing, too, to be mindful of with Dustin Hopkins. He has been excellent on kickoffs for Washington. And I think this may be as big of a thing as anything in terms of why Ron is stuck with Dustin Hopkins. Dustin Hopkins, as you like to know, has a strong leg. The extent to which, though, he has blown past the league average in terms of touchback percentage over his time with Washington really is substantial. Okay, so last season, Dustin Hopkins had a touchback percentage on his kickoffs of 83.3. The league average was 61.2. I was actually surprised by that. I would have thought the league average would have been a lot better than that. But 61.2 league average for touchback percentage. Hopkins at 83.3. 2019, Hopkins at 70.6. In terms of the touchback percentage, league average 60.9. 2018, Hopkins 80 touchback percentage, league average 60.8. 2017, Hopkins 72.5 touchback percentage, league average 57.1. 2016, 70.7 touchback percentage, league average 57.6. 2015, Hopkins a touchback percentage of 65, league average of 56. Year in and year out, Dustin Hopkins is double digit percentage points better than the league average in terms of touchback percentage. And I think that's significant. You know, you're playing that field position game, you want a kicker who can routinely put it through the back of the end zone. And Hopkins can do that. And I know you could say, well, actually it's better to not kick touchbacks. It's better to kick off the football to like the opposing team's one and then they have to return it, but they don't get it back out more than say, you know, 10-15-20 yards, that kind of thing. Okay, fine. But by and large, Teams want kickers who blast touchbacks. Hopkins does that about as well as anyone in the NFL. So that is worth mentioning. I will concede to you, though, with Dustin Hopkins, and I certainly have had this feeling. The loyalty that Washington has demonstrated to Hopkins over the years really has been something. He joined Washington originally in September 15, right after the uh, the week one loss to the Miami Dolphins that season of FedEx. Remember, Kai Forbath was the kicker to begin the season. He gets cut after that 17-10 loss. Uh, to the Dolphins. Remember that game, by the way, Miami Dolphins fans taking over FedEx field. Like er- everybody knows about like Pittsburgh Steelers fans, Philadelphia Eagles fans taking over FedEx. Well, what I'll always remember week one, 2015, Miami Dolphins fans taking over FedEx uh, for that game. But anyway, Hopkins joins the team after that game and he's been the team's kicker ever since. He's been Washington's kicker now for six years, 15 through 20. Like you think about some of the longest tenured kickers. In Washington football team history. Like, okay, Mark Mosley is the gold standard. He was Washington's kicker for twelve and a half seasons. But like when I was a kid, Washington's kicker was Chip Low Miller. And like Chip Low Miller every year was Washington's kicker. Well, Chip Low Miller was Washington's kicker for seven seasons, 1988 through 94. Hopkins now has been Washington's kicker for, like I said, six seasons. Like Hopkins is in that Chip Low Miller territory in terms of tenure with the Washington football team. Washington has shown an extreme loyalty to Dustin Hopkins even when he's missed time. Uh 2017, Dustin Hopkins missed eight games due to right hip injury. His replacement, you may remember, Nick Rose actually did quite well when 10 of 11 on field goals, nailed a 55-yard field goal late in the fourth quarter of a 38-30 loss to the Minnesota Vikings at FedEx Field in week 11 of that season. But when Hopkins got healthy, Hopkins got his job back. Like, I remember the conversation that year. There was some talk of like, hmm, maybe Nick Rose has Wally Pipped Dustin Hopkins. It was like, no. Dustin Hopkins is our guy. He has had some brutal missed kicks over the years, especially in that 2016 season, right? Who could ever forget him missing that 34-yard field goal attempt in overtime in the 27 all-tie with the Cincinnati Bengals in London Halloween weekend of that year. Hopkins had two big misses in the Thanksgiving loss at the Dallas Cowboys in 2016. Although one of those misses, this has always been very interesting to me, was a first quarter 43 yard attempt that actually looked as if it may have been good and the officials missed it, that it was good, but they called it no good. But anyway, missed two kicks did Hopkins in that loss at the Cowboys Thanksgiving 2016. Also had a big missed field goal try in the loss at the Detroit Lions in that 2016 season. That was a game right before that uh, tie with the Bengals in London. So that 2016 team, right? 8-7-1, misses the playoffs. Defense was atrocious. Kirk Cousins throws up on himself. Week 17 loss to the New York Giants at FedEx Field. But another factor for Washington not making the postseason that year was Dustin Hopkins. He had some big missed kicks in that season. I don't have anything against Dustin Hopkins. I have found it kind of odd and interesting and noteworthy the extent to which Washington has again shown him this incredible loyalty like you would think he's Adam Vinatieri. You know, you would think he's Justin Tucker with how uh, loyal Washington has been to him over the years. But I will say this, big strong leg. He has come through more often than he hasn't. I think it's fair to say that. I do think you could do better than Dustin Hopkins, but of course the thing with kickers is you can also always do a lot worse. And one of the things that will doom you is a kicker or a kicking situation that you just can't count on. You know, ask the Tennessee Titans fan about that and how much Bad kicking, bad kickers can doom you. So yeah, like I'm fine with Dustin Hopkins being brought back. Strong leg, excellent on kickoffs. I get all that. I I don't think it'd be the worst thing in the world though to introduce some competition to the situation. You know, Ron preaches competition all the time. I would not be anti-competition for Dustin Hopkins at training camp in 2021. But yeah, he's a kicker. He's not going to cost you a ton. Go ahead and bring him back. And let's hope that the Dustin Hopkins we saw as the 2020 season went on is the Hopkins we see moving forward, as opposed to the guy who missed way too many kicks over, say, the first half of the 2020 season. One more Washington football team item, and then we shall dive headfirst into all of the college basketball. So with the legal tampering period getting going noon Eastern on Monday, of course, quarterback remains of utmost importance for the Washington football team, who will be the number three in terms of the mix involving Kyle Allen and Taylor Heineken. Of course, it doesn't mean that the guy you acquire as your number three ends up being your QB three. It could be that the guy ends up being your QB one, but we're talking about a third man entered into the mix. Uh, In terms of free agent quarterbacks, you know, you're looking at the likes of Ryan Fitzpatrick, Tyrod Taylor, Mitchell Trubisky, Jacoby Brissett, Andy Dalton. Marcus Mariota has not been cut by the Las Vegas Raiders. So for now, if you want Mariota, you're going to have to trade for him. Same, of course, for Sam Bradford, but a man who is no longer set to be a free agent is Cam Newton. Uh, we had multiple reports on Friday that the New England Patriots are re-signing Cam to a one-year contract, and the reported details of the contract really do scream: this is a deal that a backup quarterback would sign. You know, New England is not bringing Cam back to be its unquestioned QB one. It may turn out that he's the Pats' QB one, but this is a contract that reeks of: all right, you maybe will have a shot at being our starting quarterback. But there's also a very decent chance you're our backup quarterback for 2021. The contract allows for Cam to earn $5.1 million if he's healthy and on the Pats roster as a backup, allows for Cam to earn $6.6 million if he starts for all of the 2021 regular season, allows for Cam to earn $8.6 million if he starts for all of the 2021 regular season and the Pats make the playoffs. And the contract ultimately allows for Cam to earn up to $13.6 million based on honors and how far the Pats go in the playoffs. As is always the case with these contracts, you see the headline, you see the initial reporting, you see something like one year, close to $14 million. So you see that, you're like, well, all right, he's coming back as a starter. It's like, no, the contract has a max value of about $14 million, 13.6 if you go by the reporting. And that's if like everything goes right. You know, he gets a bunch of honors, Pats go deep in the postseason, et cetera. So New England bringing back Cam as part of the Patriots quarterback mix. Now look, Cam in 2020 with the Pats, Good over the first two games, right? Actually put up some really good numbers over weeks one and two. 8.76 yards per pass attempt, 71.4 completion percentage for rushing touchdowns. But his numbers dipped in week three. He then missed a game due to testing positive for COVID-19. And Cam ultimately, over 15 games, number 30 out of 33 qualified quarterbacks in ESPN's total QBR at 47. The only qualified quarterbacks who had worse total QBRs than Cam did in the 2020 season. Nick Mullins, Nick Foles, and Sam Darnold. That's the QBR company that Cam kept in 2020. Nick Mullins, Nick Foles, and Sam Darnold. Cam finished the season with a mere eight touchdown passes versus 10 interceptions. He's going into his age 32 season. He was very durable over his first seven seasons. The last few years though, the body has started to fall apart. Now, he did mostly stay healthy in 2020. That is true. He just missed the one game due to COVID-19. But remember also with Cam, January 2019, he underwent an arthroscopic procedure on his right shoulder. Cam in the 2019 season played in just two games due to a left footless frank injury for which he underwent surgery in December 2019. And here's kind of the bottom line with Cam overall. Cam, of course, he had that peak 2015 season, right? Associated Press, MVP, Panthers go 15-1, and win the NFC Championship, Ron Rivera's greatest season as a head coach. Cam over five seasons since 2015. So we're talking 2016 through 2020. Very pedestrian numbers. 73 touchdown passes versus 54 interceptions. A yards per pass attempt of just seven. A completion percentage of just 60.8 people still get caught up in like Cam's the guy we saw in 2015. That was Pete Cam. That was Cam at his best. That's not who Cam has been, certainly over the last five years. Like, don't get caught up in 2015. Focus more on what you've seen since then, and what you've seen since then is a much different quarterback. Specific to Washington, uh, J.P. Finley, Washington football team insider for NBC Sports Washington, he reported all the way back on February 25th, that a source close to the Washington football team had told him that there was no reason to believe that Washington's stance on Cam had changed off the team having made, remember, like, no effort to sign Cam the previous offseason. I mean, that was always a thing to keep in mind. For the many times that Cam Newton came up regarding, will Washington sign Cam? Will Ron bring Cam to D.C.? That kind of a thing. Ron Rivera, in the 2020 offseason, right, traded a fifth-round draft choice for Cam's backup for the Carolina Panthers in Kyle Allen. And everything that was reported as the offseason went on screamed, Washington just wasn't interested in Cam Newton. And Ron Rivera himself said that Washington was not interested in Cam Newton. Ron Rivera on March 24th, 2020, went on WFNZ in Charlotte, said the following in response to whether Washington had interest in signing Cam. (laughs) No. That was it. Said no, like no wiggle room. No, yeah, maybe, you know, if this, then that. No, it was no, not interested. And of course, Washington wasn't interested and that didn't change this off season, And Cam now is back with the New England Patriots. I will say this for Cam. I think it is very much an endorsement of him that Bill Belichick is bringing Cam back. Like the fact that Belichick wants you back, even if it is to be the QB2, I think that says something about Belichick thinking, okay, the guy still can play. And he was a good fit in our locker room, and there were some unusual circumstances for Cam. You know, he came to the Patriots late in the offseason, dealt with COVID-19, you know, so maybe Balintzic's like, okay, a full true offseason, maybe we'll see a better version of Cam in 2021. So I, I don't know that he's like necessarily like done or shot, but he's definitely not the guy he was in 2015. His body has accumulated a lot of mileage at this point. And for our team, the Washington football team, and I keep going back to this, I want youth, I want upside, I want durability. Cam Newton to me was never the way to go for Washington at quarterback for 2021, and we now know he will not be the way that Washington goes. All right, we move now to college hoops. Selection Sunday on Sunday evening, 2021 NCAA tournament is set, at least set for now. Like I said earlier, we'll see what transpires with Wahoo Wah. We'll get to Virginia coming up momentarily. We'll get to the glorious weekend for the Georgetown Hoyas up in New York but we'll start here with the Maryland Terrapins who were revealed as the number 10 seed in the East Region for the 2021 NCAA Tournament. First round game to take place against number seven seeded UConn at Purdue's Mackey Arena this Saturday night at 710. So, as you likely know by now, this year's NCAA tournament going to be unlike any other. All of the games are taking place in the state of Indiana, and the schedule isn't what we're used to, where you know, you have the first four games Tuesday and Wednesday and you have the first round games Thursday and Friday. It's like, no, things are being reconfigured because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so first round games are going to be happening Friday and Saturday. Second round games are going to be happening on Sunday and Monday. So it's Maryland-UConn, a 10-7 matchup at Purdue's Mackey Arena Saturday night at seven ten. The Terrapins in the NCAA tournament for a fifth time in six seasons. We're not counting 2020 for which, of course, there was no uh, tournament. Due to the pandemic. It was interesting if you were watching the selection show on CBS on Sunday night. It took a while, a long while, until Maryland was announced for the tournament. And I, I know that some people are like, boy, I was nervous. I thought the Terps weren't going to get in. It's like, no. I, I mean, for me, as a Maryland fan, as a guy who went to Maryland, I never was, like, worried. I mean, I, I certainly knew Maryland was making it. But it was kind of odd. And it was kind of comical. Like, I was like, Hmm. Uh, are they going to announce our team here? Like, what's going on? But I never felt like Maryland wasn't going to make it. Maryland was not a bubble team. Maryland was in. All right, we talked about this. Maryland, with that 68-57 win over Michigan State in the second round of the Big Ten tournament last Thursday, that sealed the deal for Maryland. Whatever doubt remained about the Terps making the NCAA tournament eradicated via that victory over the Spartans. So the Terps were getting in, but it did take a while for the announcement. Uh, to be put out there. UConn's a really interesting matchup for Maryland. Of course, there is a lengthy history between the Maryland and UConn programs, going back to Gary Williams and Jim Calhoun, going back to the epic battle the two schools had in the 2002 NCAA tournament, which of course was won, uh, by the Terrapins. But UConn's a good team. Uh, UConn goes into the tournament 30th in Division 1 per the NCAA's net ranking, 16th in Division 1 per KenPalm.com, which also, by the way, has the Huskies 24th in the country in adjusted offensive efficiency and 25th in the country in adjusted defensive efficiency. So UConn, the rare team that can say it's top 25 in the country in both adjusted offensive efficiency and adjusted defensive efficiency. UConn's got two really good players, two really good guards. Uh, UConn is one of those classic, you know, guard-oriented teams that makes the NCAA tournament. The number two score, number one assist man for the Huskies, is R.J. Cole, who was an outstanding player at Howard for a few seasons. He was the MIAC Rookie of the Year 2017-2018, Mi'ak Player of the Year 2018-2019. But Cole is banged up. He's in concussion protocol due to having banged his head on the floor. And the Huskies lost to Creighton in the semis of the Big East Tournament on Friday night. And then UConn's other stud guard, its leading score, in fact, is James Booknight. He in the Big East Tournament dealt with cramps, and he struggled uh, over two games for the Huskies, just 8-25 of shooting including os 7 on three. So UConn is good, but Maryland may well be catching UConn at just the right time. Now, uh, as for what went down ultimately for the Terrapins in the Big Ten tournament, Friday, the 79-66 loss to the one-seeded Michigan Wolverines at Lucas Oil Stadium in Indianapolis in the quarters. It was not a game you anticipated Maryland winning. Uh, you know, Terps were the eight seed. Michigan was the one seed. Terps had been done dirty by the Wolverines in two prior meetings during the regular season. The game, though, was disappointing because here you had Maryland with less than six minutes left in the second half within six at 65-59, then gets outscored the rest of the game 14-7. But beyond the game, there was, of course, the incident. And, and that, is, that is what this game is going to be forever remembered for. The incident between Mark Turgeon and the Michigan head coach, the former bullet slash wizard, Jawan Howard. Media timeout with the Turf trailing by 10 to 57-47 with 10.44 left in the second half. Turgeon receives a technical foul. Howard receives a double technical foul and gets ejected from the game. The two had started yelling at each other on the sideline. Howard eventually had to be held back. Now let's start with that, okay? Jawan Howard is 48 years old. He's listed, or at least he was listed as a player as being six nine. Mark Turgeon is fifty six years old, was listed as a player at Kansas years ago as being five ten. So Jawan Howard, eight years younger than Turgeon, Jawan Howard six foot nine, as compared to Turgeon being five foot ten, and Howard has to be held back from charging at Turgeon. Now, not to say that I think, like, Howard would have attacked Turgeon and, you know, thrown punches at him. But, I mean, that to me is such a great hysterical visual, okay? What courage it took from Juwan to even feign going after Mark Turgeon. Man, boy, that took guts, didn't it? That took a lot of heart. That took a lot of valor on the part of Juwan Howard to make a charge at Mark Turgeon like that. I, I I got such a kick out of that. I mean, get out of here with that crap. Uh turns in during his virtual postgame press conference, quote, this has been going on for three games. I've been doing this for 34 years and I've called the conference office. I've called the commissioner and I said, I won't take it the third game. So I stood up for myself and my team. All I said is, don't talk to me. Don't talk to me. Howard, during his virtual postgame press conference, quote, He said, as in Turgeon, Jawan, I'm not going to let you talk to me. Don't talk to me ever again. Then he charged at me. I don't know how you were raised, but the way I was raised is when someone charges you, you defend yourself, end quote. So each guy had his own version of what went down. Look, I I think a lot of this, maybe all of this has to do with the Hunter Dickinson situation. Hunter Dickinson, 7-1 Michigan freshman, went to DeMatha. Uh, he claims that Maryland did not recruit him or did not recruit him particularly hard. Um, there, there's a, there are a lot of different versions of what happened here. I, I think what I can gather, you know, you kind of collect all the different tales and you try to find it. What the truth is, what I can gather is Maryland did recruit Hunter Dickinson, maybe didn't recruit him as hard as Maryland has recruited others, and that may well have been rooted in Maryland believing that Dickinson wasn't going to Maryland, so you know maybe there's a, maybe like a classic thing of you didn't dump me, you know i I dumped you or i you can 't fire me, I quit you know that sort of a thing like did Dickinson let it be known that he wasn't probably going to go to Maryland. And so Maryland stopped recruiting him hard at that point. Or did Maryland stop recruiting Dickinson hard? And then Dickinson decided he wouldn't be going to Maryland. Like, I don't know. Okay. I don't know really that it matters anymore, but a lot of this has to do with that because Dickinson has been very public and very much out there about how Maryland didn't recruit me or didn't recruit me hard enough. And he's made, let it be known that he's not happy about that. And he's tried to show up Maryland at various points. During the season, what's interesting about this Big Ten tournament loss for Maryland to Michigan is that the Terps actually did a good job on Dickinson for a second time in three games this season. Hunter Dickinson finished with just six points, five rebounds, and four turnovers in just 23 minutes as a starter. But th- there's definite recent history between Maryland and Michigan. You know, it also was that uh, initial Maryland-Michigan game, the loss to Michigan at Xfinity Center on New Year's Eve, in which Daryl Morcel got hurt. He suffered a fractured bone in his face. Uh, actually, underwent surgery on New Year's Day. Though, in typical Daryl Morsell fashion, he only ended up missing one game. But a lot had gone down previously between the two schools in the regular season. It gets ramped up in this Big Ten tournament matchup. And the two coaches going at it on the sideline. I actually think, bottom line, this. This is actually really good. Maryland needs a rival in the Big Ten. Maryland has been starving for a rival in the Big Ten, right? We, We all, as Maryland fans, miss Maryland Duke. You know, Miss Maryland, Carolina, like you miss your traditional ACC rivals. You've been in a big Ten now for a little while. It takes a while to develop rivalries, but you haven't had that. You haven't had like an opponent year in and year out. You look forward to facing and beating as a Terps fan. Maybe Michigan can become that team. Maybe this Mark Turgeon, Jawan Howard feud can become a thing to where these games become big deals. Maryland, Michigan, like that would be a really good thing. I don't think what happened in this game on Friday is necessarily bad for Maryland basketball. Like, I think it's actually probably good. Again, get a little juice, get a little fire, a little bit of fervor in terms of these Big Ten matchups for Maryland. You know, a a reason to despise truly one of these Big Ten opponents for Maryland. Maybe Michigan can become that rival. We're going to do a lot more on Maryland in the NCAA tournament in the coming days. Like I said, though, I do think UConn is a winnable matchup. And we'll see which version of the Turps shows up against the Huskies, right? I mean, you never quite know for sure. At times, Maryland looks great. At times, Maryland looks very feeble. But if the good version shows up, there's no reason the Terps can't beat UConn at advance of the second round. Now to the Hoyas. What a job by Georgetown in the 2021 Big East tournament. The thing that the Hoyas almost certainly had to do to make the NCAA tournament, the Hoyas did do. They won the darn thing. A spectacular job, an all-time job by Patrick Ewing and his guys. Hoyas are the number 12 seed in the East region in the NCAA tournament. First round game against five-seeded Colorado at Butler's Hinkle Fieldhouse on Saturday afternoon at 12.15. Uh, Colorado is an interesting team. Like UConn, one of these teams that does both offense and defense. While well, Colorado goes into the NCAA tournament 15th, in Division 1 in the NCAA's net ranking, 17th in Division 1 for Kempon.com, which has the Buffs 17th in the country in adjusted offensive efficiency, 29th in the country in adjusted defensive efficiency. So not an easy matchup for Georgetown, but you know what? At this point, it doesn't matter. If the Hoyas keep playing as they just played in the Big East tournament, anything is possible. And how about the championship game in the Big East tournament? Saturday evening, eight-seeded Georgetown with not just a win over two-seeded Creighton in the Big East title game at Madison Square Garden, but a rout, a smashing, a pasting, a polaxing of the Blue Jays. 73-48 was the final of that game. The Hoyas didn't just stunningly win the Big East tournament. The Hoyas capped the stunning run with a stunning blowout. That was a demolition by Georgetown on Saturday evening. Hoyas trailed in the first half 13-6, then won the rest of the game 67-35. The Hoyas ended the first half on an 18-0 run, then started the second half on a 16-3 run. The Hoyas in the second half led by as many as 31 points, (laughs) never led by fewer than 16 points. The Hoyas demolished Creighton on the glass, out-rebounded Creighton 49-33 for the game, held Creighton to 28.8% shooting, including nine of 34 on threes. Hoyas in the second half, 54.6% shooting, including five of 12 on threes. Like I can go on and on. This was like a dream performance by Georgetown in the biggest game of the season. And so the Hoyas end up doing it. Win the four games in four days. Clinch the program's first NCAA tournament berth since 2015. It's amazing. Georgetown came into the biggest tournament having gone 0-3 in Big East tournament games with Patrick Ewing as head coach and then goes 4-4 over those four days. Hoyas now eight all-time Big East tournament titles, the most in conference history. The Hoyas just getting to that Big East tournament title game marked the first time in the history of the Big East that the team that was picked to finish last in the conference made it to the conference title game. Yeah, don't forget that Georgetown was picked to finish last in the Big East this year, ends up winning the conference championship. And the Hoyas win that Big East tournament despite having had a 0.5% chance of doing so going into the tournament for ESPN's Basketball Power Index. It is not hyperbole. It is not an over-exaggeration to say this was an all-time great run, an all-time great performance by Georgetown in this Big East tournament over the last few days. And how about this as the cherry on top of the Sunday? That win over Creighton, to win the Big East tournament, to clinch an NCAA tournament berth for Georgetown. That win comes 49 years to the day of Georgetown hiring John Thompson as head coach. John Thompson got hired as Hoyas head coach March 13th, 1972. The Hoyas smashed Creighton to win the Big East tournament championship March 13th, 2021. Isn't it amazing the way sports can work like that? This is Georgetown's first conference tournament since the death of John Thompson, and you end up winning the darn thing when nobody on the planet thinks you're going to win the darn thing, and you do so 49 years to the day that John Thompson was hired as head coach. Really is incredible. Uh, so many heroes for the Hoyas in the Big East tournament. Your Belay was actually Georgetown's best player in that win over Creighton. Three of seven on threes, 19 points, eight rebounds, two blocks in just 28 minutes. As a starter, Javon Blair was very good off the bench. Four or seven on threes, eighteen points, five rebounds in just twenty five minutes uh, as a reserve. You know, it was not a perfect game for Georgetown. You, you look at somebody like I don't know, like Kudus Wahab. So eleven points, five of six shooting, twelve rebounds, but also four turnovers, also one of seven on free throws. But Georgetown defensively was so good, and that, as much as anything, is what really stood out. I know to me, watching Georgetown make this run in the conference tournament. Georgetown's defense has been very suspect uh, over these last few years, right? Anyone who's a Hoyas fan knows that, understands that. The Hoyas have deed up here recently. Did such a good job defensively on Creighton in the championship game. Did a very good job defensively in the Big East Tournament semis. You know, don't lose sight of what happened on Friday evening. That 66-58 win over Seton Hall. First of all, Georgetown, game is tied at 57, less than two minutes left in the second half. Hoyas end the game on a 9-1 run, are excellent on free throws. Seven of the Hoyas' final nine points came on free throws. Georgetown went seven of eight on free throws over the final two minutes of having gone just 11 of 17 on free throws in the game up until that point. Seton Hall, by the way, just five of 11 on free throws in the game. But getting back to the defense, the Hoyas in the second half of that win over Seton Hall held the hole to 32.3% shooting, including two of 11 on threes. I mentioned shooter Belay, massive block by him on an attempted driving layup by Shavar Reynolds Jr. with about 51 seconds left in the second half, and the Hoyas nursing a three-point lead at 61.58, and a tremendous job by Georgetown on Seton Hall's best player in the game. The 6'11", Sandro Vili. he was held to just eight points on three of 16 shooting, including one of five on threes. This was 1980-style Georgetown defense. This was Hoya-Destroyer kind of defense. You know Patrick Ewing loved what he saw defensively for the Hoyas over these last few days. Uh, Dante Harris ended up winning the Dave Gavitt Trophy as the most outstanding player of the Big East tournament. Actually didn't shoot that well in the championship game, 0-5 on threes, but he finished with 10 points, eight rebounds, five assists, just one turnover. I mean, freshman point guard doing that in a big spot like that. Hard to complain. And Harris was also very good in that win over Seton Hall. Two of two on threes, 15 points with the shot clock winding down, drew a foul on an attempted three, and then drained the three free throws with 21.4 seconds left in the second half to give Georgetown a 64-58 lead. Yeah, I mentioned the Hoyas, who weren't good overall on free throws in that Seton Hall win, uh, coming through in the clutch on the free throws late in that ball game, What a job by Georgetown. I mean, I, I can't say that enough. I, I, I cannot emphasize that enough. And it's not always the same people. You know, it's been a different cast of guys. But, you know, the thing about Georgetown is it doesn't always have to be like the same one or two people. You know, it's not like Javon Blair has killed it game in and game out here recently. It's not like Jamarco Pickett has killed it game in, game out recently. But you're getting contributions from not just those two, but from Dante Harris, from Kudis Wahab, from Chudy Belay. And the Hoyas get the job done off to the NCAA tournament for the first time since 2015. It really is the kind of thing that epitomizes March Madness and how you're never done until you're done. And it's the reason why these conference tournaments exist. I mean, I'm like a lot of people. I've I've lost interest in a lot of these conference tournaments in recent years, no doubt. Like, they just don't mean what they used to. But what Georgetown just pulled off, it's a reminder of what conference tournaments can be and can mean. And it was an unforgettable last few days. It's possible it saved Patrick Ewing's job, okay? I mean, I don't know what happens with him from an employment standpoint if Georgetown doesn't win at least a few games in this Big East tournament. You really do have to wonder about that. You were staring at going 0 for 4 in terms of Patrick Ewing making the NCAA tournament. Four seasons, each without an NCAA tournament appearance. And like I said, going into this Big East tournament, you hadn't even won a conference tournament game over Patrick Ewing's first three seasons. All of that gets changed. All of that gets flipped on its head. Patrick, the Hoyas at the Garden, get the job done, off to the NCAA tournament. Just an outstanding job. And if you think on this Monday we're not going to play some classic Rich Fodkin, then you'll be wrong. Here you go.
0: Hoyas Hoyas win!
1: Hoyas win! 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 The Hoyas did win, and actually one of the funny things about the blowout of Creighton on Saturday evening was that the final call from Rich was actually very subdued because the game was a no-doubter. It was a laugher, so there actually wasn't that usual emotional charge from Rich on his Hoyas win final call that you get. I had to go dipping into the archives to play for you the one. We just gave to you right there. But outstanding work by Georgetown. All right, where are we with the Virginia Cavaliers? Well, the Cavs are in the NCAA tournament. Uh, they were revealed as the four seed in the West region. Going to have a first round game against 13-seeded Ohio at Indiana University's Assembly Hall on Saturday evening at 7.15. I say gonna. Uh, that is COVID-19 protocols permitting. As you likely know by now, Virginia's game on Friday against four-seeded Georgia Tech at the Greensboro Coliseum in the semis of the ACC tournament canceled due to a positive COVID-19 test. Subsequent quarantining and contact tracing within the Cavaliers program. Virginia of course was the one seed in the ACC tournament was looking uh, quite nice in terms of having a good shot at winning the conference championship for, you know, whatever value that might have. And the Cavaliers end up being uh, ousted from the tournament via COVID-19 as opposed to the Yellow Jackets. Now, a release that was put out by the ACC said that Virginia's status for the NCAA tournament was to be determined. Uh, of course, this was not the only team that had to deal with something like this over the last few days, right? Duke, in fact, uh, announced on Thursday morning that it had to withdraw from the ACC tournament due to a COVID-19 test within the program uh, after the Blue Devils win over Louisville in the second round of the ACC tournament on Wednesday evening. So the most basic COVID-19 related rule for this NCAA tournament is that all, quote, tier one travel party participants, end quote, need to undergo and document seven consecutive negative COVID-19 tests prior to arriving in Indiana, right? Which is again, where the entire 2021 NCAA tournament is going to be taking place. So Virginia, like we said, for now is scheduled to be a part of the NCAA tournament. And if it's able to pass this testing uh, requirement here, right? Uh, seven consecutive negative COVID-19 tests, then you should be good to go. In terms of, though, what would happen if Virginia can't meet that requirement, so the NCA has a list of policies for replacing teams in the 2021 NCA tournament. Among those policies is this. Replacement teams will only be introduced into the tournament within 48 hours after the announcement of the field and at no time thereafter. So there's a deadline here of replacing Virginia. The deadline is Tuesday evening at 6 Eastern if you don't have a replacement team by then, or if something comes up after Tuesday evening at 6, then it's simply going to be a forfeit by Virginia in the first round. The NCAA has been very clear on this. No replacement teams will be introduced into the NCAA tournament after that deadline. Again, Tuesday, 6 p.m. Eastern. Once the tournament begins, no team is replacing a team that has a COVID-19 issue and can no longer participate. Again, the team's opponent simply advances to the next round via the no contest rule. So that's where we stand here with Virginia. Uh, you know, obviously, if you're Virginia, you want to try to push this out. You want to get beyond that Tuesday evening deadline at six o'clock. You want to make it so that the NCAA has no interest in having a forfeit, having a no contest scenario. And you clearly want to be passing uh, all your COVID-19 tests here moving forward. I, I do want to, though, acknowledge this. Because this is one of so many things with COVID-19 that is confusing, that is counterintuitive. So I get why Virginia's game on Friday had to be canceled. In college sports, right, with quote unquote student athletes, you know, it's not pro sports. One person tests positive, especially having, the t- with the team having already played. You do have to err on the side of caution. You, you know, there is a major element here of optics. And so you do have to say, all right, your team's just done. It's not going to play moving forward. I would say, though, had Virginia continued to play, it would not have been some maniacal way of doing things. Again, I get why the NCAA operates this way. You have to operate out of an abundance of caution, not just because these are not professionals, these are college kids, but also because, again, the optics, all right? Let's be honest about this. This isn't just about preserving the health of student athletes. It's also about making a ton of money. The NCAA lost hundreds of millions of dollars in the NCAA tournament not happening in 2020. You want to do all you can to make sure that that NCAA tournament for 2021 ends up going down. And these schools, same thing. They want to share in that wealth. So they're going to abide by ultra strict protocols, even if some of those protocols, you could argue, aren't necessarily completely necessary. And I say all that because of this. And this has never gotten enough attention when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic. As it relates to sports, as much as we think that sports, especially like basketball and football are ripe for on court slash on field spread, there just has not been any evidence that that's been the case. It's really interesting. Uh, there was an article that was published on January 15th by this guy, Baxter Holmes, who's an NBA writer for ESPN. The article included the following quote. In terms of what it would take to suspend a season, the only issue that officials mentioned was a scenario in which it was found that players were transmitting the virus to one another during games. But the NBA has yet to find evidence of such a scenario, league sources say, end quote. So as much as you have contact in basketball? as much as you've got guys with their bodies uncovered, right? I mean, you've got your arms out there in the open, your legs out there in the open, your faces out there in the open. There hasn't been any evidence of on-court transmission of COVID-19 in the NBA, at least as of the publication of this ESPN article back on January 15th. How about this regarding the NFL? I didn't even know this until I came across it the other day. January 25th, there was an article that came out by the Associated Press. The article was about the CDC having published a scientific paper jointly authored with medical experts from the NFL and the NFL Players Association detailing the efforts to complete the NFL's 2020 season without any canceled games due to COVID nineteen, right? All of the hand wringing and all the NFL has it gonna have a season. Every single game in the NFL for the 2020 season, regular season and postseason ended up taking place. Now, were there some uh, postponements? Yes, but all of the games ended up happening. But how about this in this article from this guy, Dr. Alan Sills, who is the NFL's chief medical officer. I I found this so interesting. Quote, we have not seen any evidence of on-field transmission in NFL games or practices. I think that is an important observation. It's certainly a question that many people raised before we started as to why that occurred. I think there are a number of theories that people have advanced. One of them is that obviously we're playing either in an open area or at least an extremely large air environment where we've got a lot of ventilation, a lot of movement, and likely quick dispersal of any droplets or particles, end quote. Like I said, I didn't know about this until I came across this the other day. I feel like this got no attention. Did you know about this? That the CDC... Published a paper in conjunction with the NFL and the NFL players association to talk about the great job the NFL did with COVID-19. That this guy, Dr. Alan Sills, the NFL's chief medical officer has said point blank, there is no evidence of on field transmission of COVID-19 in both NFL games and practices. Like, why hasn't that gotten more attention? Why is it that all of the bad stuff with the pandemic gets highlighted and repeated ad nauseum, and the good stuff never gets mentioned, like never gets highlighted, it gets diminished, it feels like. I just, that drives me nuts with this whole thing. Um, You know, not that this pandemic has been anything close to good, not that this thing hasn't been tragic, of course it has been, but there are important positive developments that like never get emphasized, and specific to sports, this is a big one. There's been no evidence of on-court transmission. There's been no evidence of on-field transmission. So in like a perfect world, had Virginia been allowed to continue on in the ACC tournament, I don't think that that would have been some, you know, completely reckless, ridiculous way of going about things. Like I said, I understand why the ACC did as it did. I understand why the NCAA is doing as it does. This is big money. These are student athletes. They're not professionals making millions of dollars. We still don't know with COVID-19 years down the line, if you had it, what ends up happening to you? Like, is there going to be something 10, 15, 20 years from now, God forbid, where people who had COVID-19 are having all kinds of health problems that took years to develop? Like, we don't know that. That's true. That's all very true. But I think that's really important to understand that as much as some people, especially a lot of people covering sports, feared, you know, uh, this virus is going to spread like wildfire in football games. or this virus could spread like wildfire in basketball games. Not only has that not happened, there's zero evidence of in-game, in-practice transmission of the virus in these sports. And that's excellent news. That's excellent news. So I hope Virginia is able to participate in the NCAA tournament. Virginia is a good team. It's been kind of a weird year for Virginia. You could argue it's actually been better offensively than it has been defensively. The com efficiency rankings certainly suggest that. And this first-round matchup against Ohio, you know, Ohio's an interesting team. Just 87th in the net rankings, just 78th per KenPalm.com, but Ohio did lose by just two points at Illinois back in late November. Illinois obviously ended up winning the Big Ten tournament, number one seed in the Midwest region. So Ohio can play, and we all know what can happen to Virginia in first-round NCAA tournament games. Google UMBC, for those who don't know. Like Danny said, you can Google that. You should Google that. Yes, thank you, Danny. On to the Hokies. And we'll actually talk Virginia Tech and VCU in this segment. So it was a disappointing run for the Hokies in the 2021 ACC tournament. Tech ended up being one and done as the three seed. Fell to six seed at North Carolina, 81-73 at the Greensboro Coliseum in the quarters on Thursday night. But as I talked about on the podcast on Friday, just don't know right now like what to think of Virginia Tech. That was the Hokies' first game since February 27th, just their third game since February 6th. Due to all kinds of COVID-19 difficulties this season for both tech and tech's opponents. Hokies get into the NCAA tournament as the 10 seed in the South region have a first round game against seven seeded Florida, Butler's Hinkle Fieldhouse on Friday afternoon at 1215. The Hokies are an interesting team when you look at like the analytics versus the record. The overall record for Tech this season ended up being good, but the analytics have really not been that kind of Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech goes in the NCAA tournament just 48th in Division 1 per the net rankings, just 50th in Division 1 per chempalm.com. So that explains why the Hokies, who went 15 and 5 overall in the regular season, 9 and 4 in the ACC in the regular season, end up being just a 10 seed in the NCAA tournament. Florida's an interesting team, good, yes, but also a loser of three of its last four games going into this NCAA tournament. So the Hokies could be catching Florida at just the right time. But you take a step back, it's really cool to see Virginia Tech basketball becoming what it's become. Virginia Tech had a stretch in which it made the NCAA tournament one time over 20 seasons. Virginia Tech had a stretch in which it made the NCAA tournament just two times over 30 seasons. This same Virginia Tech basketball program now has made the NCAA tournament in each of the last four seasons in which there has been an NCAA tournament. The Hokies made the NCAA tournament three straight years, 2017 through 2019. We had no tournament in 2020, and now Tech is back to being in the NCAA tournament in 2021. The Hokies in that 2019 NCAA tournament, remember, advanced to the Sweet 16 for the first time since the NCAA tournament expanded. In 1985, and the Hokies have kept the success going despite a coaching change. Right, the Hokies had those three straight NCAA tournament appearances, 17 through 19, with Buzz Williams as head coach. But he left after that 2018-2019 season, his fifth season as Texas head coach, to become Texas A&M's head coach. The new head coach, Mike Young, hired away from Wofford, 16 and 6 overall, 7 and 13 in the ACC. In the 2019-2020 season, this season he wins ACC Coach of the Year, and he's got Tech back in the NCAA tournament. Virginia Tech, not just about football anymore, as we're seeing. Great job by the Hokies overall, getting the basketball program on track here. And you could actually argue that Tech basketball is in a better place than Tech football is these days. And who to thunk uh, that we'd ever say? Something like that. As for VCU, VCU back in the NCAA tournament for the 12th time since 2004. VCU is the 10 seed in the West region, gonna be facing 7 seeded Oregon at Indiana Farmers Coliseum in Indianapolis on Saturday night at 957. VCU, another program that's kept things going despite a coaching change, right? Shaka Smart, long gone Mike Rhodes in his fourth season at VCU. Uh, The Rams have the A-10 player of the year in Bones Highland. Uh, VCU was second in the A-10 conference in the regular season, reached the league's championship game in the conference tournament. And VCU, 37th in the country, in the NCAA's net rankings, 45th in Division One for KenPalm.com, which has VCU, by the way, 12th in the country in adjusted defensive efficiency, points allowed per 100 possessions adjusted for opponent. It's interesting, when it comes to basketball in the Mid-Atlantic region in the NCAA tournament, you have three 10-seeds, Maryland, Virginia Tech, and VCU, each a 10-seed for this upcoming NCAA tournament. All right. So we have talked Washington football team and NFL free agency. We have gone heavy on the NCAA tournament and where we're at with Maryland, Georgetown, Virginia, Virginia Tech and VCU. And we still have yet to get to the Capitals, the Wizards, the Nationals and the Orioles. I told you this was a loaded show on this Monday. So the Capitals in action on this Monday night at the Buffalo Sabres at seven. Caps are second in the East Division at 38 points, four points behind the first place. New York Islanders, who won again on Sunday. The fighting Barry Trotzers cannot lose. 3-2 shootout win at the New Jersey Devils. That's now nine consecutive victories for the Islanders. Caps just had one game over the weekend. It was another win. 5-4 victory at the Philadelphia Flyers on Saturday night. Caps improved to 17-6-4. How about that? Caps are 17-6-4 and not even first place in their own division. But how about the extent to which the Caps were the Philadelphia Flyers' daddies? over the last week or so. The Caps ended up beating the Flyers in Philly three times in seven days. You know, you have this bizarro NHL season, right, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, the realignment of the league, teams only playing intra-division games, and the Capitals beaten up on the Flyers to the tune of three wins in Philly in a seven-day period. Caps also improved a 4-0 and do without Tom Wilson. During his seven-game suspension. Caps, though, did lose another player. So they got back Lars Eller from a one-game absence caused by a family matter. But he ended up playing for just a minute 29 due to suffering a lower body injury. So you get back Eller and then you lose him right away. Uh, third consecutive game, the Caps, they win despite A, getting walloped in the puck possession battle to at least some degree and B, blowing a significant lead or coming close to blowing a significant lead. That is the thing with this Caps team. This season, and we've talked about this. The record is tremendous, but some of the underlying stuff is a little concerning. I.e., it's very well, made, it very well may be the case that the Caps just aren't as good as the record suggests. Now, you don't have to apologize for your record being better than maybe you are, but that is worth noting. Like the Caps are seventeen six and four. I don't think that they're seventeen and six and four good in terms of like how well they played this season. And this game on Saturday night was representative of that. The Caps won this game despite per natural stat trick in the second period having just 13 five-on-five shot attempts to the Flyers 28. I mean, you got more than doubled up in the puck possession battle in the second period on Saturday night. The Caps per natural stat trick for the game, just four five-on-five high-danger shot attempts to the Flyers eight. So you got doubled up for the game in terms of high-danger shot attempts. Uh, the Caps for the game just 23 shots on goal to the Flyers, 32. And the Caps nearly blew another substantial lead here. Caps were up 5-2 in the third period. That became 5-4 thanks to giving up a power play cold to defenseman Shane Gostespierre, thirteen oh seven into the third period off a of Nick Jensen interference penalty. And then giving up an even strength goal to Claude Giroux, seventeen oh three into the third period. Although that goal was with the Flyers having an empty net and the extra attacker. So with the goaltending on Saturday night, Ilya Samsonov was back out there. Uh, he was the Cap starting goaltender for a fourth time in seven games, and, you know, he was kind of so-so. He stopped 28 of 32 shots per natural stat trick, gave up two goals on low-danger shots in addition to giving up a goal on a high-danger shot and a medium-danger shot. You never want to see goals given up on low-danger shots, so you didn't like that about Samsonov's game, but you have to be fair to the guy. Those two goals that came from the Flyers in the third period, like we said, one was a power play goal, so it's hard to be too angry at a goaltender for that, especially if you go back and watch that Gosses spare goal or if you watch the game, you know this. The goal came with a ton of traffic in front of Samsonov, so it wasn't an easy shot to stop. And then that even-stranded goal by Giroux, uh, that came with, like I said, the Flyers having an empty net and an extra attacker. So you, you, can't, you can't be too hard on Samsonov. But, you know, bottom line, giving up four goals in a game, stopping just 28 to 32 shots, giving up two goals on low-danger shots. It's, it's not exactly a banner night for a goaltender either. Like, let's be honest. Uh, You did get a goal from Alex Ovechkin on Saturday night. Power play goal, 13-10 into the second period for a 4-2 caps lead. It was another good game for Ovechkin. I've been singing this guy's praises. Uh, recently here on the podcast. Even though he hasn't been racking up the goals, he's been very active. He's been very involved. Another game along those lines on Saturday night for him. And in this case, he does get the goal. But he finished the game, Ovechkin did, with a team-high four shots on goal and a game-high nine-shot attempts. The power play goal coming from where else? The left circle, right? Ovi striking from the top of the left circle, the Ovi office. It is career regular season goal number 716 for Alex Ovechkin. He is now within one of time. Phil Esposito for number six on the NHL's all-time goals list. And uh, the goal was Ovi's 263rd career regular season power play goal. So he's actually within two of tying Brett Hull for number two in NHL history in terms of regular season power play goals. And it was also another very good game for the Caps' fourth line. Carl Hagelin, Nick Dowd, and Garnett Hathaway. Terrific again. These guys have done a really good job. It's been so telling to me. Peter Laviolette has mixed and matched a bunch this season his top three lines. But LaViolette, by and large, has left the fourth line alone because the fourth line has been that good. Haglin, Dowd, Hathaway. Haglin on Saturday night, even strength goal, 13-21 into the first period for a 2-0 Caps lead, jamming in the rebound of a shot by Nick Jensen from above the right circle while right in front of the Flyers goaltender Brian Elliott and battling for position and for the puck with the defenseman Shane Goss despair. So a typical greasy, grimy, dirty fourth line kind of goal Authored there by Haglin, who by the way also had the lone assist on the Nick Jensen second period even strength goal for a three one Caps lead. You look at Dowd, he had an even strength goal on Saturday night four twenty five into the third period for a five two Caps lead, elevating his stick to deflect into the net a shot by Garnett half the way from above the high slot of having gotten right in front of the Flyers goaltender Carter Hart. Yeah, the Flyers pulled Elliott in favor of Hart to so another dirty goal there scored by her fourth line. With that Dowd goal, he did have a second period holding penalty, but whatever. And Hathaway, he had two assists, led the Caps with six hits. So very good job by the Hagland-Dowd. Hathaway line, another win for the Capitals. Yeah, like I said, probably not as good as 17-6-4 might suggest, but whatever. Get your wins, pile up the points. You don't have to explain or justify any of those things at the end of the season. Four points behind the Islanders and a game at the Sabres on Monday night at 7. So the Caps continue to pile up the wins. The Wizards. Yes, our Wizards. The damn Washington Wizards. Thank you, Stephen A. Smith. Uh, they continue to pile up the losses. Two more losses over the weekend, dropping the Wizards now to 14 and 23. Four games behind the Atlanta Hawks for eighth in the Eastern Conference. Wizards have dropped five of six. And oh, by the way, home again on this Monday night to the Milwaukee Bucks a seven o'clock tip. So we'll take the games in order. Friday night, Wizards losing to the Philadelphia 76ers, 127-101 at Capital One Arena. The game, a complete disaster for the Wizards. They never led in the game. They trailed by 32 points in the fourth quarter, scored 15 points in the first quarter, allowed the Sixers to shoot 54.4% from the field, including 11-21 on threes. The Wizards in the game out-rebounded by 17 at 49-32. The former Wizard, Dwight Howard, who like never played for the Wizards in his one season with the team, 10 rebounds in just 18 minutes, 25 seconds off the bench. The Wizards a pathetic 13-22 on free throws in this game. And the Wizards failed to capitalize on Joel Embiid getting hurt. He suffered a left knee bone bruise, played uh, for just 20 minutes, 24 seconds as a starter. Like I said, a complete debacle of a game. Davies Burton's 1-5 of on threes off the bench, left the game due to right calf tightness. Rui Hachimura had zero rebounds, zero in more than 21 minutes of playing time. As a starter, how does that happen? Like a basketball to just fall into your arms when you're Hachimura size and you're out there for 21 plus minutes. The guy had zero rebounds in 2104 as a starter on Friday night, and the game was really it was Bradley Beal, Russell Westbrook, and nothing else. Beal and Westbrook combined for 44 of the Wizards' 101 points. Beal actually played despite being a game time decision due to left knee soreness. So Friday night, the loss to the Sixers at Capital One Arena, a complete disaster. Saturday night was better, but it was another loss. So 123-119 loss to the Milwaukee Bucks at Capital One Arena. Beal did not play due to rest. Like I said, he had been dealing with left knee soreness. Burton did not play due to the right calf tightness, and yet the Wizards did make this a tight game. Uh, I do give them credit for that. Uh, the game featured 18 lead changes, 12 ties. Wizards never trailed by more than eight points, but the Wizards did end up losing. And Scott Brooks, if you watch his virtual postgame press conference, not happy at all about two no-calls in the final minute of the game with the Wizards trailing by two at 121-119. So complaint number one was no foul being called on a misdriving layup attempt by Russell Westbrook with about 25 seconds left. It did not appear to me as if a foul was committed by Chris Middleton. I know that's what Brooks wanted. Uh, I didn't think it was that obvious, but Brooks wasn't happy about that. And then complaint number two was no foul being called by the officials as the Wizards were trying uh, to foul, you know, trying to intentionally foul. Giannis did a kumbo. That's become a popular tactic, as you likely know, you know, like hack a shack, hack a freak, hack the Greek freak. Uh, Wizards eventually did get called for a foul on Chris Middleton, but that came with 9.4 seconds left and more than 15 seconds having elapsed since the Bucks' possession started. Now, Brooks did admit during the virtual postgame presser that uh, the Wizards had failed to trap the ball quickly enough. And that's the thing. Like, you know, you can whine and complain about these things in the final minute of a close game. You got to execute, man. You got to not put yourself in this position to begin with. And again, like I said, it didn't look to me like Westbrook got fouled. And the thing with the officials not calling the foul by the Wizards on Giannis, like, okay, maybe they did foul Giannis, maybe they didn't. But, you know, if you trap the ball in a quicker fashion... Then maybe it's not an issue. Maybe the foul does end up being called. Like again, execute better, be better. You know, so the complaining stuff. It's like I'm really not interested in hearing that, especially when you're 14 and 23 on the season and you've dropped five to 26. Wizards could not stop the Greek Freak on Saturday night. He went two of four on threes, had a triple double: 33 points, 11 rebounds, 11 assists versus four turnovers. Uh, he in just the third quarter had 15 points. In fact, scored 15 of the Bucks' 30 points in that third quarter. But like I said, the Wizards did make this a game. Uh Russell Westbrook had another triple-double, his 11th triple-double in 30 games with the Wizards. 42 points, 12 assists, 10 rebounds to go with two steals. Now, you know, it was a Westbrook game. Uh He was bad on free throws again. Man, has he been awful on free throws uh this season, five and nine. He did have a bunch of turnovers too, six turnovers, but he also went five of 11 on threes. Like, it was all things considered a better uh, Westbrook game. And, you know, look, you score 42 points, you have a triple-double. Like, it's, it's hard to sit here and crush the guy. Just still, the free throw shooting's been a real problem and the turnovers continue to be an issue. But Westbrook really had the Wizards in this game. Fourth quarter alone, Westbrook 3-6 three on threes. He scored 16 of the Wizards' 24 points. And let me praise Hachimura because as bad as he was on Friday night, he was that much better on Saturday night. Had maybe, truthfully, his best game of the season on Saturday night. Hachimura bounced back big time, 3 of 5 on threes, 8 of 13 on twos, 29 points, 11 rebounds, and 3 steals. Two other notable things from a Wizards standpoint from this game, so Brooks did make some significant changes to the starting lineup for Saturday night. Alex Lenz started over Mo Wagner. Wagner had started each of the Wizards 13 previous games. He actually ended up being a DNPCD. Lenz starts, finishes with 10 points on 3 of 4, shooting 6 rebounds, and a plus-minus rating of plus nine. Denny Avia started on Saturday night. He had been coming off the bench, uh, had done so for each of the Wizards' previous 16 games. Didn't do much uh, in this game as a starter on Saturday night. One of six on threes, five fouls. And I don't know if this was a change with Avdia or if he just started because, you know, a guy like Beal wasn't playing, wasn't starting. Uh, Garrison Matthews, though, did continue to start. So the lineup changes were noteworthy. And Haul uh, Neto had a good game off the bench for the Wizards on Saturday night. Wanted to mention him because there have been actually some really good games for Neto at various points this year. He's not great game in, game out, but when he is good, he really can be good. Uh, did go 0 of 5 on twos, but 3 of 6 on threes, had 10 points, 6 assists versus just one turnover, uh, off the bench. He in the second quarter went 3 of 3 on threes. But look, the Wizards who, like, for the longest time, and we would talk about this, were well within striking distance of not just 8th in the East, but like 5th in the East. They're now down to four games behind the Hawks for eighth in the Eastern Conference. You're losing ground even in this lowly Eastern Conference. 14 and 23 overall. Like I said, you've dropped five to six and things aren't getting any easier with another game against the freak and the Bucks Monday night at seven. The damn Washington Wizards! Thank you, Stephen A. Smith. We move to the Nationals and some concerning news for them on Sunday, although hopefully, probably, this isn't that big of a deal. But Steven Strasburg left his second start of the Grapefruit League season on Sunday due to a left calf strain. He actually looked good in the game, what ended up being a 5 nothing loss to the Houston Astros on Sunday afternoon. Two into third scoreless innings, four strikeouts versus just one hit, a double, and a walk. But he looked as if he landed awkwardly on his left leg after a pitch to Jose Altuve with one out in the top of the third and then was quickly removed from the game. Strasburg, during his post-start Zoom press conference, said that initial testing and an examination by a team physician led to the thinking that the injury wasn't serious. I know, I know, we've heard that like a million times over the years with these Nationals injuries. Initially, we're told one thing and that it's not that serious, and then later on we're told another thing and that it ended up being more serious than initially believed but with Strasburg I mean I don't want to do the thing of like you know panicking and going nuts here that oh my god he's hurt again like what's going to happen in 2021 I think you take solace from this and that a initial feeling is that this isn't that big of a deal and b he is looking good like we shouldn't lose sight of that remember this is a guy who made just two starts in 2020 underwent season-ending surgery to alleviate carpal tunnel neuritis in his right hand uh this past August 26th so you weren't quite sure well where is he going to be at coming off the carpal tunnel neuritis. So far, he's looked good. Two starts. His first start, one and two-thirds scoreless innings, four strikeouts, no hits, one walk. This latest start, up until the injury, two and a third scoreless innings, four strikeouts, one hit, and a walk. So he's looking good. It's just now you got to wonder about, well, this calf. And is this going to be something that lingers? Is this something that maybe could jeopardize his availability for the start of the season? No, we are getting closer here. I mean, today is March 15th. Opening night for the Nationals against the Mets at Nationals Park. Presumably Max Scherzer, Jacob deGrom. Hopefully there are fans in the stadium. We're still waiting on word on that. Nationals, by the way, the last team in Major League Baseball without having announced a formal plan for fan attendance to begin the season. And that's not the Nats' fault. That's Washington, D.C.'s fault. And D.C. taking its time in saying what D.C. will and won't allow from a Nationals attendance standpoint. But it's coming up here, April 1st. Like Max Scherzer, Jacob deGrom. I mean, not that far away from that here. So uh hopefully Strasburg this injury isn't that big of a deal we know he's got a history of all these different ailments you know whether it is the elbow or it is carpal tunnel or it is you know his trapezius slash neck or it is his calf you know he's had a lot of these different things over the years um this doesn't profile as something big but with Strasburg you never know until you know so we shall see with that another thing with the Nats over the last few days Joe Ross uh he looked good in his second start of the Grapefruit League season. Two runs, both of which were unearned in three and a third innings in a 4-3 loss to the New York Mets on Saturday evening. He had three strikeouts versus two hits, both of which were singles, issued a walk, did issue also two hit by pitches. But a lot of what he gave up, again, the two unearned runs, I mean, it was due to bad luck. Uh, He gave up just, like I said, two singles. It's not like he was getting whacked around the ballpark. And he was the victim of a couple of errors here, a fielding error by Juan Soto and a throwing error by Carter Keeboom, who, by the way, has not looked very good so far in Grapefruit League play. We'll see what ends up happening with that. But to whatever extent there is competition for the fifth spot in the Nats rotation, Joe Ross versus Eric Fetty versus Austin Both. Ross, over his first two exhibition starts, has done nothing to lessen the perspective that the five spot in the rotation is, in fact, Ross's to lose. His Grapefruit League debut came Last Monday afternoon, and Ross looked good in that game. A 9-5 win over the Mets. One run, one and two-thirds innings. Three strikeouts versus a single and a walk. And the strikeouts were of three of the Mets' best hitters in Brandon Nimmo, Michael Conforto, and Dominic Smith. By the way, I mentioned Fetty. He did also pitch on Saturday evening. Pitched in relief and actually looked pretty good. One run in three innings with four strikeouts versus two hits, no walks and a wild pitch. I mean, that's the thing. Like, Ross may be the fifth starter, but you know that Fetty and probably both, too, are going to be leaned on at various points in 2021, either as relievers or as spot starters. And, you know, the idea is just, can you get outs? You know, can you prevent runs? And if Fetty can help the Nats out of the bullpen, you know, then more power to him. I mean, it's not what he was drafted for, number 18 overall pick in 2014, but It's time for Eric Fetty to start really delivering at the major league level. It's time for the Nats to find a role for Fetty and just let him kind of marinate in that role instead of yanking him all over the place. I will say that too in fairness to Fetty. But going into his age 28 season, does still have one minor league option left. So it is possible he begins a season at the minor league level. But, you know, I think with Fetty, it's like, you know, it's put up or shut up, Tom. Like they need him to start producing, producing well. And like I said, they do need to find a role for him and just let him have that role, learn that role, grow into that role, as opposed to every five seconds starting, relieving, we're relieving, we're starting. I mean, you do have to say that in fairness to Fetty. And we'll close out the show talking some Orioles. Actually, a lot happening with the O's over the last few days. We'll start with this on Sunday: multiple reports that the O's are adding a new player. Uh, Orioles reportedly finalizing a contract with free agent third baseman slash first baseman, Michael Franco. Uh, Franco going into his age, 28 season. Franco's a guy who at one point was thought to be like this rising player with the Philadelphia Phillies. Actually ended up mostly disappointing with the Philadelphia Phillies. Had a strong performance over 80 games in 2015. That's what a lot of the optimism was predicated on. But Franco with the Phillies, 16 through 19, largely a disappointment, like I said. He was though actually pretty good for the Kansas City Royals in 2020. Had an OPS plus of 109 Franco did last season. Orioles' primary third baseman in 2020 was Rio Ruiz. He had a 93 OPS plus in 2020 of having posted an 81 OPS plus over 413 plate appearances in 2019. 100 is league average. So if you're above 100 with your OPS plus, which is your adjusted OPS, adjusted for your home ballpark and the league average, uh, that's good. And then if you're below 100, you're bad. Ruiz has been below 100 each of the last two seasons, going into his age 27 season, has not had a very good exhibition season here so far, has been dealing with an ailment as well. So the Franco signing makes sense along those lines, but let's bottom line this, okay? Michael Franco is going to be another trade chip, okay? Let's not sugarcoat this. Let's not present this in any way other than that. The idea here for Michael Franco, and the Orioles won't say this, but they don't need to say this. I'm saying it. He is a chip to be flipped. This is the mantra for the Orioles in the 2021 season. Continue the rebuild, continue the teardown. You want to see your prospects develop, no doubt, but you want to continue to add to your prospects' inventory. So a guy like Franco, a veteran, you sign him, hopefully he plays well for you, and then come the trade deadline, you flip him and you get some more prospects back for him. Uh, a good Sunday for Dean Kramer, one of the promising young Orioles. Uh, he was good in a 5-1 Grapefruit League loss to the Detroit Tigers on Sunday afternoon. One run in three innings on four strikeouts versus three hits, all of which were singles and two walks. This is off what Kramer did in his previous exhibition outing this past Tuesday afternoon. Three scoreless innings with three strikeouts, including two of Max Kepler in a one nothing loss to the Minnesota Twins. And Kramer in that game was clocked with a 97.5 mile per hour fastball in the final inning. I'm very excited to see what Dean Kramer could be for the O's in 2021. This is a guy, I bring this up every time, but it's worth noting, one of the guys who the O's got back from the Los Angeles Dodgers in the mini Machado trade in July 2018. Now, there was another Orioles pitcher who shined in this game against the Tigers on Sunday afternoon, and that is the lefty, Bruce Zimmerman, okay? Bruce Zimmerman tossed four scoreless innings of relief on Sunday, four strikeouts versus no hits and two walks. The outing left him over three Grapefruit League games, having tossed nine scoreless innings with 10 strikeouts versus one hit and three walks. You could argue Bruce Zimmerman has been the most impressive Orioles player so far in spring training. And it was certainly notable that the manager, Brandon Hyde, during his virtual postgame press conference, said point blank regarding Zimmerman, I see him as a starting rotation candidate. We've talked about this. We know three of the five guys who figure to make up the Orioles rotation. They are Kramer, Keegan Aiken, and John Means. We don't know spots four and five. We've had this battle going on between the three sort of reclamation projects in Matt Harvey, Felix Hernandez, and Wade LeBlanc, but it has not been clear, well, who else might be in the mix? Who else should be in the mix? Bruce Zimmerman is stating his case. And I love this. I mean, like I said, the guy's been awesome so far, and I know it's spring training. I know you can't go too nuts over uh outcomes and results and stats from these games, but with a team like the Orioles, you don't uh, poo-poo anything that you see in terms of quality play, even in an exhibition season. And, you know, I mentioned Dean Kramer and how the O's got him again. The Manny Machado trade, July of 18. Had the O's get Bruce Zimmerman. The Kevin Gaussman, Darren O'Day trade with the Atlanta Braves in July, 2018. Zimmerman was part of the package. The O's got back from the Braves for sending Gaussman and O'Day to Atlanta. So this is another instance of how those trades can pay dividends. How you can get back a piece or pieces that end up paying off for you down the line. So maybe Bruce Zimmerman ends up being a nice piece in the Orioles' rotation in 2021. I mentioned LeBlanc. He did start again over the weekend. Again, wasn't very impressive. 5 nothing loss to the Toronto Blue Jays on Saturday afternoon. Two runs in three innings. Had just one strikeout versus two hits, a double and a single. Issued three walks. He threw just 36 of his 66 pitches for strikes. All three of these guys, all three of the reclamation projects, Harvey, King, Felix, and LeBlanc, all three have looked poor. Uh, so far. That's another reason to think that Bruce Zimmerman is going to end up making the Orioles rotation. And then there was this, and this was the really bad news for the Orioles over the weekend. Hunter Harvey is hurt again. Hunter Harvey in a 6-2 loss to the Philadelphia Phillies on Friday afternoon threw just one pitch, then left the game due to a left oblique injury, which is expected to keep him out for several weeks. And if you're an Orioles fan, the phrase Hunter Harvey is hurt again is a phrase you have heard or read many, many times over the years. The O's took Harvey with the number 22 overall pick in the 2013 draft. He's going into his age 26 season. So he's still so young, you know, like it's amazing. They drafted him almost a decade ago and he's still going into just his age 26 season. But he threw the 2020 season here has totaled just 15 major league innings. Okay, And those took place over the 2019 and 2020 seasons. He is a flamethrower. He's had this great look to him with the mullet and the mustache, you know, but he just has had such a terrible time staying healthy. Hunter Harvey missed the entire 2015 season due to a right elbow strain. He underwent Tommy John surgery in July 2016. He in 2018 dealt with right elbow discomfort and a right shoulder problem. He in August 2019 made his major league debut look great. One run, five and a third innings, 10 strikeouts over his first six appearances. He then, though, pitched in one game the rest of the season due to right bicep soreness. And now he's dealing with a left oblique injury and as you almost certainly know oblique injuries are biatches in terms of injuries right they don't sound like big deals but they linger and they don't go away and they can keep you out for weeks if not months and hopefully that's not the case here with hunter harvey but man it's just like every time you get any kind of momentum every time you feel like okay now he's arrived now he's turned the corner the guy gets hurt again so get well soon hunter harvey but I don't know how the Orioles can in any way ever count on him to stay healthy and live up to what he was. Again, number 22 overall pick in that 2013 draft. All right, that will do it for you and me on what was a jam-packed Monday installment of the Al Galdi podcast, the maiden voyage for this podcast, the maiden voyage for this podcast in my new partnership here with blue wire podcast keep the feedback coming you can tweet me at AlGaldi. you can email me the al podcast at yahoo.com we are going to have so much to talk about on this podcast on tuesday with whatever transpires with our washington football team the rest of this monday have a great day i'll talk to you on tuesday that's very very hard to do you should google that i'm mark chapman welcome to the planet premier league podcast